What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. And it's funny, I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Look, when I was in the prison, I Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm Logan Aguero. And this is part two of our episode on Joseph D'Angelo, who you know is the Golden State Killer. Now, last time, Bill, we talked about how everything kind of got set up to where this guy just lost it and spiraled really badly and that was an incident where he got fired as a cop or fired from his job as a police officer so this is the line of demarcation now and now he just goes full tilt yeah um i mean a lot of so-called experts and psychologists would look at this and say oh yeah and, and you kind of alluded to it that you know he gets basically fired from the police department. He's a police officer for seven years. Uh, and he then goes full tilt boogie on us. I, I disagree with that. I don't think that being fired from the police department made him spiral anyway. This guy was graduating. As I mentioned in last episode, he went from a burglar with 120 hits to the East Area Rapist. And what he was doing was this whole time, it took him a long time. He's redefining, he's refining, and he's learning as he's going along. And each time, he needs more gratification to get him to the next level. This guy is, well, one of the guys that, one of two guys that I know, and, and both of them are in prison, that took basically a good decade or more to graduate from burglar rapist to full-on serial killer. But it's interesting, Matt, that he gets fired in 1979 for petty theft. He's still a hammer in, in, in dog repellents, which kind of tells you a lot. He's a rapist, so a lot of people have dogs, and he has a hammer just because he can. By the way, he does like to hit people with, with these objects. But... Um, he gets fired, and I guess he wants to make a new scene of an area. He needs a new, I don't know, landscape. So he moves from Sacramento to Southern California, and this is 1979. Immediately, once he gets to Southern California, he has a change of his methods. He is no longer just interested in rape. He's actually now, I guess in some ways, 
opening his wings. He's turning into the, the criminal, the predator that he's always meant to be. It just took him a long time. So what do we have? October the 1st, 1979. D'Angelo. Mm-hmm. Hello? Are you there? Hello? Yeah, there's kind of a Jim Carrey element with this guy. Like we were saying, he has everything lined up, but then he'll do stuff that kind of breaks the the mold of being calculated, and he's he's just kind of a buffoon in a lot of ways. Yeah, you get that type of, you know, element from him, because it, it seems like a comedy almost, but it's very serious. And it really doesn't take him very long to get back on the saddle again. December 30th, 1979. And remember, he has killed before. He killed the professor in his home by shooting him. But December 30th, he breaks into the home of Robert Offerman and Deborah Manning. It's in Goleta, California. And he rapes the woman and then she shoots them to death. But interestingly enough, Matt, in this crime scene, they find paw prints on the floor of the home. And police believe that the perpetrator brought a dog with him. Why would he do that? Yeah, you know, I've really been thinking about this a lot. And the only thing that comes to mind is that usually people that do burglaries, people are doing nefarious things, are normally not walking their dog. So if police happen to come to the neighborhood, they see him, he always helps walking my dog. Mm. And obviously, he's in his area. He's not, he's a a white guy. He doesn't look like a hoodlum. He doesn't have tattoos on his face. He doesn't have, you know, a 1962 Impala parked next on a lowrider. He looks like a normal middle, and he is. He's a 
former cop. With a dog, I'm kind of willing to bet that the October um, situation scared him a bit. He figured what he could do to look less suspicious. And a dog probably popped into his mind. That's pretty smart, actually. I'd be much less likely to find a random guy on my street suspicious if he had a little dog he was walking. I would just assume, oh, he lives three or four streets over. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, you know, he's been running on this this kind of like schedule three months around there. And and he does exactly that. He strikes again on March the 13th, 1980. And he hits the home of Charlene and Layman Smith. And this is in Ventura, California. But his method of killing is different in this one. He goes in and subdues both things. He brings shoelaces from He ties the couple up. He rapes the woman. And then he goes to a wood pile and picks up a large piece of lumber. And he beats the guy to death with it. And then he beats the woman to death with it. And the knots that he uses to tie them down is a special knot called the diamond knot. And I don't know what a diamond knot is. I'm not very good with knots. But it's so peculiar and so um, distinguished that even one of the papers begins to call him the diamond knot killer. Yeah. Which, that's probably not very smart unless he did it on purpose to leave his calling card but i guess tying specific knots is something that now uh, they're going to be able to identify him by yeah and i think that's this is where his police um, background comes into effect a number of the victims say that he would talk to himself that he would say things like yeah well tomorrow i'm gonna hit mill street and yeah tomorrow i'm gonna go ahead and hit this other house in this other area and he would throw them off by telling them where he was going to go. Hold on one second. Obviously, there's an alarm going off in the unit, and probably somebody got stabbed in the yard, but that's what you're hearing in the background, and that's what she's telling and directing all staff members that they're doing yard recall to bring everybody in because they probably got fucked up out there. Uh, did the alarm go off? The, the alarm is going off, right? You can't hear it. Listen. Okay, that's an alarm. When anything happens in the units, they hit this alarm that, that, that basically alerts all staff members and people in the prison and other staff members that something is happening in East Block and they should come to East Block to, uh, to assist. So he's using tactics of misdirection here. This guy's really thought about this stuff a lot. Yeah, as I said, he's a very organized guy. His reconnaissance is spot on. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And and we kind of see it because his next hit is in Dana Point, California. He's a good 150 miles south. And he hits the home of Keith and Patricia Harrington. And here again, rapes the woman, ties up the man, sets dishes on top of the body. He's doing the same thing he normally does. And he beats to death the people 
these little trips of what he likes to do, and he keeps doing it. He does it again on February the 6th, 1981. But he hits a single person, Manuela Wittuno. I hope I pronounced that correctly. It's in Irvine, California. And there he, multiple times, he rapes the woman. He also bludgeons her to death. Same year in July, 27, 1981, he hits the home of Cheryl Domingo and Gregory Sanchez. He came in through a bathroom window that he left open. He staked out the place prior, like he did for his burglaries. And he shoots the guy, Sanchez, and then he beats him to death. So he uses both tactics. He rapes the woman and then kills again. If that is his, his streak, earlier, Matt, we talked about, or I talked about, and we both discussed, that he is one of the only guys that had three different sprees. We had a different spree in terms of his crimes. His first ones were as a burglar, a ransacker, a guy who stole things from homes. Did that for a while. And then he goes and becomes a serial rapist. He has 51 victims in that. And then in 1979, he graduates and becomes a prolific serial killer. And in a span of basically two years, he murders all of these people that we just talked about right now. And then he goes cold or dormant, as some experts like to say, for a number of years. Five years to be exact. exact. On May 4th, 1986, he hits the home of Janela Cruz. She's an 18-year-old, and I'm sorry to say this, an 18-year-old child. It's a, it's, a, it's a teenager. It's a kid. And her family are on vacation in Mexico. So he staked the place out. He had set up the victim. He knew exactly what he was doing. He came into the home at night. He rapes the, the teenager and then beats her to death and disappears. It's crazy that we have five years in between all this stuff, though. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's a good one because he's born in 19... 45. So by the time 1981 comes around, he is what, Matt? He's uh, 6 by 75. He's only 30 something years old. He's not very old. So, um, yeah, he's, 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 he's late 30s. And he has a hiatus like that for five years. He did go to prison, he was not arrested. But there is a lot of speculation on what he's doing during this time. Between 1979 and the late 80s, there are no records of him working. Is he taking care of his kids? Is he a stay-at-home dad? Maybe. I don't know, and I don't know if you and I can sit here and say absolutely that these are all his murders right here. And I say that because we've seen him change M.O. We've seen him graduate to be a different type of perpetrator. What's to say that he just didn't return to doing something different? 
In a lot of these crimes, he shot the person to death. In others, he beat them to death. And some he did both. So between 1981 and 1986, maybe he changed his MO. Maybe he was killing, but people don't know it was him. And we also have to recognize, Matt, that during this time, the 81 to 86, in that time period, we had different serial killers in Southern California. One of them, by the way, was also known as the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. And his MO was very similar to this guy. Tie up the people, shoot the male, you know what I mean? He raped the women. Of course, all of these here were tied to him because of DNA. And ultimately, it was proven that he did these. But something tells me that this guy may have been doing other things that he's not been caught up talking about. I really believe that. He, good. he could have been traveling to another part of the country, even. I mean, the thing that is really smart i guess or, or well strategized i should say about what this guy's doing with these murders is he's going to communities that are isolated and have no relation to each other that are crisscrossing the whole state you know dana point to ventura there's just no connection between those two places and it's there's so many people in between that that's the best thing he did to get away with this stuff. And I think a lot of serial killers probably know that that's the best way, but, but it's also, yeah. you know, there's laziness involved. I mean, it's, it's not easy to drive three hours and then drive back. So he didn't do these murders out of convenience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I, I don't know if the drive is that much, it bothered him that much, but I think you're right. He could have very easily gone to a different part of the country. He could have very easily did things different. Maybe he did not leave the unit in some instances. Maybe he used, I don't, I, I don't know exactly, I, I, don't, I hate to speculate, but it seems unreasonable that this guy stopped for five years and then 86 suddenly stopped again. Forever. Let me call back. So the last known murder is 1986, and, you know, years go by, and you would think, all right, these are cold cases. He's probably gotten away with it, but what actually happens to where he is eventually apprehended? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting thing, because you're right. He supposedly stopped in 1986. I don't believe that. I don't believe that he just stopped because he's fairly young. I can see he was 70 years old in 1986. Yeah, it gets a little difficult. He doesn't have the same drive. The testosterone levels in his body, the chemical makeup of his body has gone down. We know that our testosterone levels start dropping because our body stops producing testosterone around the age of 29 to 30. But this guy's in his prime. So I don't believe he stopped. Nevertheless, 14 years, nearly 15 years pass in a connections made. A lot of law enforcement officers, some who were working the case, recognized that the East Area Rapist was in fact the guy that they were calling uh, the Night Stalker in Southern California, which is not Mercury Ramirez, it was this guy. But no one believed it, they couldn't prove it. In 2001, a big thing happened. DNA became something that 
about what was going on, and that's when the connection came. They matched the DNA from the rape kit of the East Area Rapist, and it made a hit with the DNA found at the crime scenes of the original Night Stalker in Southern California, and boom, they connected it. That's where the case revived itself again. Um, and people took an interest. FBI got involved. They joined in with local law enforcement, and they put a $50,000 reward for this guy. But really, nothing happens. That name, Irons, because that's when they started naming them Irons, uh, East Area Rapist, Original Night Stalker. And this is way past the time that Richard Ramirez was already arrested for all those murders in Southern California where he was dubbed the Night Stalker. We're talking about now, we're in 2001. But the case really doesn't go anywhere. There are no arrests. The DNA is being matched to CODIS, which is the big uh, DNA bank for all criminals in the United States. And there are no hits. This guy is not in the system because, of course, he hasn't been caught for any major crimes. He's never done prison time. And by this time, a law enforcement in prisons, because of this case as well, are demanding that anybody in jails or in prisons give up their DNA. And it, it, look, here on death row, it had a huge impact. When they started taking everybody's DNA on death row, including mine, there were a lot of cold cases that were lingering that no one knew about that suddenly became live because some of the serial killers here, their DNA matched a cold case that someone had in a different county, a different state, and they were taking people. One of them was a dating game killer. That guy was taken off to throw to be, to be tried in Southern California for several other murders because of DNA. That suddenly they realized he was the one that did it. But in this case with uh, D'Angelo, that doesn't occur. There is no DNA match. So the case, again, goes cold. All right, so I'm confused how there's not a match, but we'll get to that later. So Michelle McNamara, she writes this book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and this kind of sheds some new light onto this guy in this, this string of cases, and that's when he's actually labeled the Golden State Killer because she kind of connects a lot of them through her, just her internet research, right? Well, she believes that the case, she's, she's been chasing this guy. She is a true crime, um, I guess, fan. She really loves true crime and she studies it. She's a knack for it. She remembers dates. Unlike me, who's a tenor of her name, if you hit me on the head, she remembers dates, times, and she's really beginning to study this guy's case. She knows he's out there, but she believes that the name Irons or East Area Rapist or the, the Diamond Knot, they're just horrible names. So she redubs him the Golden State Killer. And she begins to write a book. She teams up with a number of different detectives, writers from the Los Angeles Magazine, and she begins to really research, get attention. She gets a podcast. She begins to talk about this case, and it draws really a lot of attention to the case. Unfortunately, Michelle passed away in the in the, in the night from a heart condition. She was really exhausted because of the case. She went to sleep. And her husband finds her dead. And I guess as an act of his love for his wife 
and what he felt he wanted to accomplish, he brings in people and they finish the book. As the book's being finished, there's a DA in Orange County who also joins in on this hunt for this guy. And really how it happened was, I'm not going to say it was dumb luck because this guy left no DNA. I mean, he left DNA, but he wasn't caught for anything. And he was living a normal life. He was a grandfather, retired cop. He was living with his daughter and his grandchildren. Nobody was looking at this guy. But a smart person decides, okay, he's not in the criminal bank. He's not, he hasn't committed a felony crime because he would obviously be on in CODIS. So let's get this DNA that we have from the East Bay rapist and the Night Stalker, which is the original Night Stalker, hit him. And let's run it through these genealogy sites because then maybe we can get a genetic genealogy match. And they went to a place called GenMatch. And all they did was put his DNA in there and see what happens. It was brilliant. I mean, I sit back and I, I smile. It was brilliant. Because what they did was they found a match to a great, 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 great grandfather from the 1800s that this killer, whoever he was, was related to. So they put a team of workers together, meaning law enforcement, and then they began to make these family trees and started going down this path of looking for a person alive today who would have that same grandfather. And they ended up getting, you know, they have 25, 10, 20, and they finally got to two of them. But one of them had died and only one was left. And that was D'Angelo. But still, it wasn't enough. They needed to have everything. They just couldn't go arrest a guy, so they waited. They waited till he discarded something. He went somewhere, he ate something, they discarded it. And that's all good police work, good old-fashioned police work. We've seen that happen with the, the Grim Sleeper case. He threw away a slice of pizza or whatever it was, they took DNA from it, boom, match. Same thing with Jack. They went to his trash can, pulled out a few things he used, grabbed a cup, Sure enough, he is the guy known as Iran or the Golden State Killer, and they arrested him. It's pretty brilliant if you think about it. Yeah, and the way this technology works is impressive also. And like you said, it can basically identify your immediate family is what it can do right now. So even if they didn't have your DNA... As long as they have someone's, you know, who your relatives are, which is... Yeah, and that's really how they caught him. I mean, I, mean, I guess it's brilliant. Um, they would take him in and he... Hey. Okay. Hey, man, I, they got to close up the spook force because of the, of the emergency, so I'm going to call you back to finish this episode. Okay? Okay, like t- later or tomorrow? I'll try and call... Maybe today, but probably tomorrow then. I mean, I can't get the phone. Okay, so listeners, you might have noticed we had kind of an interruption there. 
and Bill, the phone pretty much just got snatched from you. We didn't even really sign off like we usually do. So what happened there? Well, that was two days ago, of course, and um, it is now Friday. And, um, well, basically there was an incident on the yard, on death row, and uh, when that incident happened, the administration then came to my cell because the phone is wheeled to my cell, and I'm actually sitting in my cell talking on it, and they said, you have to, you have to get off the phone. I asked, what happened? They said, there's been an incident. You need to get off the phone. So I gave the officer the phone back, which is just a receiver. It's like an old 1970s phone. I gave it back to them, and they wheeled the phone away. They closed my trace lot, and that was it. And what really was going on was the administration was responding to an incident on the yard. They have protocols they have to do. They lock all the trace. And because this is a security housing unit or a specialized housing unit, you know, everywhere we go, we're handcuffed. So they locked everything down, and then staff responded to the yard to really take a guy off the yard who was being, who was brutally attacked. And it was an attempted murder in his life. He was stabbed several times. And, of course, he went to the hospital. Uh, I'm happy to, to say that he has made it. He's, he seems to be responding okay to medication and to the operation they, get, they, they performed on him. But the day after that, of course, uh, they searched um, some of the guys involved. They, they had a mandatory yard where everybody goes outside. They were searched one side, then they come to our side, which was yesterday. Again, they brought dogs in. They, they do a very thorough search looking for everything, any kind of contraband. And they, once that's done, you're brought back into your cell. And it's over with. Today, although I'm allowed, to use, I'm allowed to use the phone, there is no yard program because they're still investigating what happened. So it's pretty traumatic. As I mentioned before, Matt, death row is a very serious place. There's a lot of brutal attacks on people. Um, this is a sanguine out there where you see all the college programs. Death row is a whole different place. When you walk through the steel doors of Condemn Row, you're walking back in the 1977, the violence that happened in prisons back then. So your life kind of got thrown into disarray because that is your personal space, and they came in and tossed it up, right? Yeah, that's part of the program here. When someone uh, results to violence in, in handling situations, um, they have to search. So yeah, my cell, my personal space is... In search, they have to look. They have to, they have to take into consideration that anybody can involved. So, I don't really look upon it as something that, oh my God, they're they're after me or they're picking on me. It's part of being in prison, and I accept that. And I, I don't have anything to hide. I don't have anything in my cell I shouldn't have. So it was for, it was pretty much a they walked in, they searched it, and when they left, I came back and I reorganized myself. But there was nothing in my cell that was considered contraband. So. I go about my business. So you can't say much about this incident, I'm assuming, and I don't think you know everything, but are there any details that you can say? Like, why was the guy attacked? Was it gang-related? Do you know the guy personally, even if you can't say his name? Is there anything else you can give us? Well, I do know him. I know him personally. I know who he is. I don't have a close relationship with him. I know who he is. He, um, and he was stabbed multiple times. And it was involved in involving gang life because these guys are usually involved in stuff are involved in gangs. But there's not a whole lot I can say because there is an investigation going on until the until the PSR comes out, which is a um, 
they have like an analysis system on death row where when an incident happens, they pass out a, uh, a paper giving you the details of what's going on, why we're locked down, and what is the outcome of that investigation. And until that moment, I don't feel comfortable speaking about the legalities or the details of that situation because, well, obviously I don't know much. I was in my cell when it happened. But you being on death row, being in prison, you can pretty much guess what's going on. But I'd rather not speculate until that report comes out and it's being cleared by the ISU, which is the uh, Institutional Security Unit. And when, once they come up with a report, then I think I'm okay to speak about it. And I know that you like your phone schedule has been messed up because it kind of creates a backlog. So no one can do anything. You can't go outside. You're totally locked down, right? We are locked down pending that uh, investigation, and, and that's to be expected. We do understand that. I mean, I think most of the guys that have been here a while understand what the, the protocols are, and this is part of the protocols. Now, unfortunate they gave me the phone to use. They're not really um, too concerned about that, but they don't want anybody going outside where something else could happen until they fully investigate the situation. All right, so I guess I can take a deep breath and reset. I'm glad that you're all right. Nothing, you know, fell upon you. And when we left off, we were talking about, obviously, the Golden State Killer. And we were talking about how they used genetic genealogy to catch him through DNA. So I guess we can just skip forward. Let's just say he's caught through DNA um, but something weird happens after he's arrested, or at least his histrionics start to get more elaborate. This guy, this guy's a goofball. It's <laughs> he's an enigma in that way. Well, I, I think that I think you're right. You, you can look at it being a goofball. With me looking at the situation and hearing what he did, I think it was very calculated. I think he he knew exactly what he was doing. And you know, I've talked about it before, and I've spoken about this, that the death penalty scares people. The death penalty makes people really scared, especially criminals when they're being accused of crimes that could lead to a death penalty, because you have this picture in your mind of what really happens when the death penalty is given you. You know, you're marched down a corridor, they struck you a chair, they kill you immediately. Well, that really doesn't happen, but the killer doesn't know that. So when he gets arrested, he goes into the room, he's by himself in a room, and of course they're recording him or they're filming him. He knows this. He goes into this elaborate theatrics. He begins to talk to himself. And he's almost arguing with this guy named Jerry. And some of the things he's saying is, it's, it's too convenient. I mean, if you said stop it, I know, stop trying to take over my brain, I get it. But he says stuff like, you made me do it. But I stopped it the first time. And for you know, all these years, Jerry, you haven't been able to come out. And I've had a, I've had a happy life. I've lived a normal life. And I, I, I've, I've won this game, Jerry. You're not going to make me kill again. You know, it's just too convenient. He goes to elaborate freaking theatrics about Jerry. And I guess the his plan is for the doctors, whoever listens to this, to believe that he's got multiple personalities and that Jerry's one of those personalities that takes over or took over back in the day and when he was the ransacker, then he became the East Area Killer and then he became Eros, which is the original Night Stalker, and he killed those 13 people. So again, you and I have talked about this, Matt. 
remember we talked and I said, listen, serial killers always look for an excuse as to why their actions take place. It's instinctive. They're, they instinctively want to tell somebody, make excuses for themselves. It's like that clown is always talking to the, to the detectives in the in all these investigations. We spoke to John Douglas of the FBI, and he's explaining why he's a killer and that his mother did this to him. Those are excuses. And here's a classic case of D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, being caught. He's put in a room, and he starts on these theatrics of making excuses as to why he did what he did. Well, I feel like he was doing a pretty bad job. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Yeah, my point is, is just if you're trying to fool a mental health professional, you got to do better than that. I don't think this guy read any books on abnormal psychology or whatever, but it's not as simple as simply you having a conversation between two people. Well, of course, but he didn't plan it. He didn't have a chance when he studied this. This was just flying off the cuff, and he thought he was scared. He'd just been arrested first time. This guy killed for years. He raped for decades, and now he's arrested, and he's on the other side because he was a cop before. So, of course, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to act. He's never been on this side of the law when it comes to being arrested. So he comes up with this cockamamie scheme, and look, the DA in that county, L.A., Ventura, Dana Point, Orange County, the Bayer. The Bayer cases, by the way, the statute of limitation was over. Back in those days, rape had a seven-year um, statute of limitation. If they didn't catch it in seven years, you were home free, which is a little crazy if you think about it, but that's exactly what happened. So he was only on trial for the things that were, since the law changed or what it was, were, had an, uh, the murder never had a statute of limitations. So they charged him, I believe it was with 13 murders, and he was afraid of death penalty, and he was made a deal. Look, the DA knew what was going on. He understood this guy is 70-something years old. If we give him a death penalty, it's a waste of money, and it's a waste of time. He'll go to death row, he'll get three meals a day in a, in a, in a cell, he'll get a beautiful lawyer team, investigators, and all this stuff, he's going to get all the fame in the world. That DA was kind of smart. He said, you know what, I'm not even going to play this game with him. We'll give him life without any cost to other murders. Yeah, I guess a lot could be learned from that DA. That is a very pragmatic way of going about it. Yeah, because he was going to do life without the possibility of parole anyways on death row. He was never going to be executed. It takes 20 or 30 years to go. To get, it takes 15 years to get lawyers on death row, just to get a lawyer. And then it takes another 10 or 15 years to go to the state. He was looking at a 40-year stint. He wasn't going to live more than 10 years. So that DA took a pragmatic approach a smart approach, an approach based on common sense, and thought, you know what, it costs the taxpayers millions less, there's no trial, we have a DNA, he's guilty. And he made a quick decision, got him out of there, and good riddance. Yeah, well I can't imagine in prison a bigger target than this guy, a serial killer who used to be a cop, my goodness. Um, but oh, yeah. he didn't go to death row, so what do you think, can you speculate on what his life has been like since um, since going to prison? Sure. Uh, I can probably tell you exactly where he's at. He's probably at a level two prison or maybe level three. He's in protective custody. He probably goes to a child hall to eat with a bunch of other guys who have similar type of cases who are possible law enforcement or maybe serial killers who people want to kill anyways. 
and he's gonna probably live anywhere between six and seven more years before he dies. The reason I'm being so specific, he's never been done in prison. This is a shock to his system. He's already an older guy. He doesn't look like he's in very good health. I'd say six, seven years and he's gonna pass away, and that's the end of it. Yeah. Well, screw him. Get rid of him. It's been interesting, and uh, we will certainly be back with another episode next week. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm Luna Girl. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it. We'll see you next time. Alright, so then... Okay.